from the studio of KPSU Portland and in association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, and fellow students. Thank you for joining us. I'm Joshua Justice. And I'm Ryan Wisnor. Today, we look at the Charity Lamb Saga. The year was 1854. Violence between Native Americans and new settlers raged across Oregon. The infamous exclusion law was repealed, and the state convicted its first murderess, Charity Lamb. On May 13, 1854, Charity Lamb attacked her husband, Nathaniel, with an axe while he sat for dinner. A week later, he died from the wound she had inflicted. Her attorneys claimed self-defense and insanity. Charity had suffered both emotional and physical abuse at the hands of Nathaniel. This was likely the trigger for the attack, yet the frontier acceptance of domestic violence meant the legal defense fell apart. While the judge and the jury seemed sympathetic to Charity's case, she was still handed down a lifetime sentence of hard labor. Joining us today is Jenna Bargansky, a historian and second-year graduate student of history at Portland State University. Jen also holds a BA in art history from Northern Arizona University and is a current collections intern for the Washington County Museum. She's exploring the relationship between masculinity and domestic violence on the Oregon frontier. Her research focuses on public history, U.S. Western history, and women's history in the 19th century. Jen is primarily using the 1854 trial of Charity Lamb as a case study for this research. Thanks for joining us, Jenna. Can you begin by painting us a picture of this part of Oregon in 1854? Yeah, of course. Um, 1854 was five years before Oregon Territory was granted statehood. The fur trade had largely declined and was replaced by uh, logging and farming. Influx of white settlers into the Willamette Valley displaced Indian bands, and there was something akin to a race war in 1852 through 1853 uh, between existing bands and white volunteer forces. So the U.S. Army troops had, uh, by this time, removed most of the bands and established a reservation near the coast. So by 1854, a majority of the natives in the region had been forcibly removed. Uh, This was also the era in which Portland gained the nickname Stumptown for the number of first stumps left behind after land clearing. The weekly Oregonian newspaper had already been up and running for three years, and a new penitentiary was being constructed on Front and Harrison Streets uh, beginning in 1854. In 1852, the Lamb family had traveled to Oregon over the Overland Trail to settle on land doled out by the United States Congress, through the Donation Land Claimed Act of 1850. This law had legitimized the 640-acre claims provided under the provisional government with the stipulation that white male citizens were entitled to 320 acres and their wives were eligible as well for 320 acres. For any citizens that arrived after 1850, the acreage was halved, so a married couple received a total of 320 acres. This law was one of the first to allow married women in the U.S. to hold property under their own name. To gain legal ownership, the claimants had to reside and make improvements on the land for four years. And this law was momentous in shaping the history of Oregon, as in 1850 there was approximately 
uh, 12,000 white immigrants in Oregon Territory, and uh, 10 years later in 1860, there were nearly 60,000. So the lamb claim was located near uh, the Clackamas River along the road that led from Philip Foster's farm, today Foster Road or Clackamas Highway 224 near Damascus. Okay, so we mentioned it in our introduction. Can you the, the attack that happened on May 13th, 1854, could you describe what happened? Sure. Um, on the Lamb Homestead claim, uh, the evening of May 13th, 1854, family had just sat down for supper, and Charity approached her husband from uh, behind and struck him twice in the head with an axe. Uh, their teenage daughter, Mary Ann, and four young sons were present at the time of this assault. Charity ran out the door in the direction of their neighbors, uh, Benjamin and Elizabeth Smith, who lived just uh, over a mile north of the Lamb Homestead. As Charity darted through the front gate, she shouted for the boys to take care of their baby brother, and Marianne quickly followed after her mother. So the axe blows did not immediately kill Nathaniel. He stumbled outside after his wife, but rapidly collapsed in front of the house after a few steps. Nathaniel told his eldest sons, Abram and Thomas, to fetch the neighbor, Mr. Smith, and a local physician, Dr. Presley Welch, was called to the house where he found Nathaniel bleeding and writhing on the floor and helped the boys put him in bed. Uh, Dr. Welch discovered the axe covered with blood and strands of hair near the table where Charity had dropped it. Um, Later that night, Dr. Welch went to the Smith's home to speak with Charity. He found her seated in front of their hearth, smoking her pipe and appearing fairly calm. He stated that Charity confided she did not mean to kill the critter, that she only intended to stun him until they could get away. Charity was nervous to go back to the house and expressed concern that her husband would kill her if she returned. Welch assured her that Nathaniel was in no condition to do so and would die very soon. Charity eventually agreed and went back to the house the next morning to make the children's breakfast and feed the baby. She was persuaded by Welch to enter the room where her husband lay on his deathbed. Welch later testified in court that he overheard a conversation between the couple. Charity entered the room and said, Nathaniel, I am here. Nathaniel then replied, Yes, dear, I see you are. My dear, why did you kill me for? Charity then explained she did so because of the violent abuses he had shown her over the years. The next day, Constable C.A. Cantonwine took Charity into custody, and she purportedly said she was sorry she did not strike harder and prevent him from being a witness against her. Once in custody, she behaved as though she was insane, but witnesses stated this may have all been a ruse. So... Now there seems to be a general general consensus that Charity Lamb suffered uh, domestic abuse at the hands of her husband, Nathaniel. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about their relationship and how you are able to sort of document that that terrible really terrible uh, you know circumstance? Sure. Um, newspapers during this period uh, included trial transcripts from significant cases. Um, and a husband killing murderess was big news for the frontier. I can only assume the purpose of including these transcripts was to appease the curiosity of the community. And really the only proof I've uncovered uh, so far relating to the allegations of domestic abuse are um, eyewitness accounts from Charity's children that are located in these trial transcripts. Um, these transcripts also indicate further incidents that Charity 
uh, and the children endured quite a bit of abuse. Um, Marianne and the two eldest brothers, 13-year-old Abram and 9-year-old Thomas, were uh, questioned as witnesses at their mother's trial. And they all testified to the verbal and physical abuses that Charity endured their whole lives. When asked why Charity did not escape her husband, they stated when she tried to leave Nathaniel, he would grab his gun and tell her to come back or he would drop her um, where she stood. Uh, he had regularly threatened Charity while crossing the plains on the Overland Trail as well. Uh, at least once she had taken his rifle and traveled a mile ahead of the wagon train to keep him from harming her. And during the first winter, um, the family was in Oregon. Nathaniel attempted to hit her with a stool when she refused to rise from her sickbed. Uh, subsequently, he had thrown a hammer at her head and wounded her badly. Uh, Charity also implied that he attempted to poison her after she had given birth to her last son. Um, and the latest episode occurred the day before Charity attacked him with an axe. Uh, Nathaniel had aimed a rifle at her, but shot a nearby tree once he realized the children were watching. Well, um, correct me if I'm wrong here. From you know some of the reading you had sent me, it seemed like the local newspapers were overwhelmingly biased against charity from the start. Um, you know, I guess first off is that does that seem to be the case, or um, or maybe those just the examples I was looking at. Uh, the violent nature of the attack and the fact that the children were present, I think, fueled the notion that she was a murderous maniac. <laughs> yeah. the, the public was not initially aware of the details that provoked the murder or any of the facts that the attack was a preemptive self-defense. Um, Nathaniel actually died a week after the attack on May 20th um, by the two cranium axe wounds inflicted by charity. And that same day, the Oregon Weekly Times had published an article uh, that chronicled the event and painted Charity as an inhumane monster. Um, Nathaniel was described in the same article as an industrious and quiet man who had a good claim that he improved considerably with his own hands. Um, the two sources that provided these statements to the uh, editor, uh, editor of the newspaper were Nathaniel, who allegedly had his senses perfectly the next day, um, and a not-so-nearby neighbor, Philip Foster, who lived over four miles away. Um, Nathaniel did seem to have uh, at least a few male friends in the community. He per periodically worked for the well-known and wealthy Philip Foster, who was an entrepreneur that um, owned a general store near Eagle Creek that had provided goods and services to white settlers traveling to Oregon City. Also, a friend of the family, Mr. Muzzy, um, as he's referred to in trial transcripts, uh, testified that he had been on the Lamb's homestead the day that Nathaniel pointed his rifle at Charity. Um, Muzzy worked nearby and had borrowed some tools from Nathaniel, and he had attested during the trial that Charity had pulled him aside and expressed her fear that Nathaniel was going to kill her. Uh, she said that Nathaniel planned to take their sons and move to California with a certain Mrs. Mitchell. Um, Charity told Muzzy, you think you have a friend in Lamb, but you are very much deceived. And she had actually asked Muzzy to come back later that night as she was fearful for her life and uh, wished for another man to be present, but uh, unfortunately he declined. So 
Jenna, something we mentioned in the introduction about your focus is on the relationship between masculinity and domestic violence on the Oregon Trail. And thinking about that in the opening, I'm curious if you... You've just introduced a heck of a lot of <laughs> uh, accounts of domestic violence from Nathaniel. And I'm wondering, can you talk about how how regular this was uh, on the frontier? Or just some more from your research about how uh, prevalent this was? Sure. Um, I mean, at this time, um, starting in the second half of the 19th century, uh, more on the East Coast, uh, there were laws beginning to uh, be in place against wife beating and um, started to be more looked down upon. Um, and I guess the civilized East Coast. But um, out on the frontier, it hadn't quite reached um, that level of, um, um, I guess, you know, being looked down upon. Um, violence was just part of the daily routine. I mean, um, you know, you had to hunt for food. You had to be violent against the wilderness to uh, improve the land, as they called it. Um, occasionally, you had to defend against Indian tax or uh, criminals. And uh, a lot of times, men brought that violence into their homes. And um, their wives and children uh, were the ones to suffer for it. So... Speaking of the children, um, Mary Ann Lamb, the daughter of Charity and Nathaniel, was tried as well with the prosecutors believing that she played a hand in the murder. So mm -hmm. have you uncovered any evidence that she actually participated in it or had any you know, knowledge of the attack? Um, Mary Ann, she really, it, it seemed as if she really wanted to uh, escape the oppression um, of her father, and she really saw no plausible way to do so. Um, allegedly, she had told her mother that she wanted to kill Nathaniel, but Charity said she would do it herself. Um, can only imagine that would be in protection of her daughter. Um, I think Marianne may have known the murder was going to occur, but I don't think she knew specifics of when, where, or how uh, her mother was going to carry it out. Um, so the trial itself, um, could you describe for us what a trial would look like in Oregon in 1854? Um, this was before statehood, correct? Correct, yes. Uh, so, I mean, was this judicial process something we would recognize today? Um, yeah, the judicial system in the Oregon Territory was uh, like a little more primitive, but similar to our system today. Um, since there, there was a lack of lawmen in this area, um, during this time, but um, it did in include a three-judge Supreme Court whose members doubled as trial-level judges uh, that traveled a circuit across the territory, so there were uh, three judges total. Um, judge Cyrus Olney arrived in Oregon City from Clatsop County in July 1854, and uh, he was able to hear Marianne's case on July 13th. Um, he only examined a few witnesses before he found Marianne innocent of any involvement. Uh, he stated there was no evidence she was an accessory to murder aside from her mother's alleged statement heard by the doctor um, who initially examined Nathaniel that she, Marianne, was going to do it herself, but uh, Charity told her she would do it. 
Um, also, there were it w there was a jury. Twelve male twelve male jurors were selected on their ability to be non-biased towards female prisoner. Uh, Charity's trial was held months later in Oregon City when the circuit judge came back through town um, from September 11th to 16th, when only uh, with only as the presiding judge once again. Um, and she had a prosecutor, his name was Noah Huber, and she did also have two court-appointed defense attorneys, um, James K. Kelly and Milton Elliott, who worked as a team. Okay, so, I mean, at least from my uh, small understanding of the legal system, it seems like there are some similarities there. Um, so during the trial, a supposed love letter turned up, um, or maybe this was just reported in the newspapers, have you ever viewed this, and how credible is the love letter? Unfortunately, I have not viewed it. Um, the, in the initial newspaper articles that describe the event, the motive for the attack uh, was related to an indiv individual known only as Mr. Collins. Um, Collins most likely worked as a hired hand in the area during the summer of 1853, so just prior to the, uh, the year, a year prior to the attack. And he currently resided somewhere in California, um, perhaps for uh, a gold rush. He might have gone out there. Um, Mariana Charity developed a liking for him um, during his stay in Oregon and had attempted to send him a letter, which Nathaniel had intercepted about a week prior to the attack. Um, Collins had allegedly caused a divorce nearby and um, was deemed a dishonest seducer and was looked looked down upon by uh, the ma majority of the community. Um, but according to this newspaper article, Charity and Marianne had become impatient in waiting for him and had written a letter to him stating that they were ready to go whenever and wherever he might direct. But um, the, context of the, the contents of this document remain a mystery as Marianne chose to destroy the letter immediately following its discovery by her father. Um, in her testimony, Charity attested that Marianne was in love with Mr. Collins and that Charity approved of his character and believed that he was a kind and decent man. Um, she supported a relationship between Collins and her only daughter, um, if only a way to get her out of uh, the situation she was in. Um, Nathaniel disagreed and said that he would kill Collins if he was ever found near the house again. Um, when Nathaniel discovered the letter that Charity had helped her daughter write, he was outraged and told her she would only live one more week because of the blatant disregard of his wishes. So with a jury of 12 supposedly non-biased men, um, how did the defense um, strategize? What was their argument during the trial to try to um, save Charity's, I guess, future? So um, the coroner and uh, the other doctor, Dr. Welch, um, confirmed that the injuries were indeed um, the cause of Nathaniel's death. It was clear that Charity had killed her husband, but the defense pled that she was not guilty. Um, one of her attorneys, James Kelly, took the standpoint that Charity was a deranged monomaniac, which uh, was a 19th century term for partially or momentarily insane. Um, the other attorney, Milton Elliott, claimed that the attack was an act of self-defense and argued that Charity did not premeditate the murder. 
Um, she had suffered years of domestic tyranny at the hands of her husband and had uh, ha habitually feared for her life. Um, this had gone on a long time, and uh, the larger claim was uh, that Nathaniel had driven her mad. Okay, so, you know, when we came down to sentencing, it seemed as though, um, again, from the cursory reading that I've done, it seemed like the judge favored leniency, but claimed that his hands were tied by the nature of the law. Um, you'd mentioned earlier there were some laws on the East Coast um, about spousal abuse, but without that foundation, it, it, it seemed like maybe self-defense law was a lot harder for a abused woman to prove in the Oregon Territory. Um, so uh, can you shed some light maybe on self-defense law in the 19th century Oregon? Or, um, you know, uh, how true was that the judge didn't have much leniency or ability to give leniency? Yeah, I, after, after a few hours of deliberation, the jurors in Charity's trial had asked Judge Olney um, for a clarification regarding the definition of self-defense. Um, traditional definition is when deadly force was employed in resistance to comparable deadly force. Um, and Olney was quite moderate in his explanation, actually. He uh, stated that if the prisoner believed the deceased was then about to kill her and that she could not flee without equal danger of being killed, the danger to her mind was imminent. Um, so... His description, in my mind, um, makes it seem like uh, her actions were warranted, but um, it didn't end up that way uh, when it came time for sentencing. So that brings up my question. What was the sentence that Charity got for at the end of this trial? Um, well, uh, the jury had returned a few minutes after Judge Olney's uh, description of self-defense, and Charity was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to a lifetime of hard labor. Um, as the first convicted murderess in Oregon, it may have been difficult for an all-male jury to distinguish Charity as a callous assassin. Um, instead, they may have agreed with Charity's attorneys that she was a monomaniac or partially insane. Uh, she was deranged by the fear of her husband's death threats and acted in defense of her own life, as well as her children's life. Um, though the insanity and self-defense pleas may have lessened the sentence to second-degree murder, the defense tactics did not save her from a lifetime of imprisonment. So you touched on that a little bit, but do you believe that charity sentencing may have been affected by views about gender on the frontier? Yes, I do. Um, other men who were charged with similar crimes, um, so second-degree murder, and placed in the penitentiary, were many of them were given lesser sentences, and they were released um, after a given time period. Um, Charity's case, uh, being um, husband murder, was the first of its kind in the region, and I think the men... And they were all men, uh, jury, judge, attorneys, uh, witnesses, um, save her daughter, Marianne, um, were all involved in her sentencing and were probably fear fearful at the thought that a woman was capable of committing such a violent crime and perhaps thought it best to keep her, keep her locked away for life. Hmm. That makes me, I wonder if I could just ask if, um, do you think that the sentencing reflected maybe their own, um, this is just 
but I th- was just thinking about it as you were talking. Like, was it more of a combination of like her speaking out as a woman within an abusive relationship than it was about the her role, the actual the violence that she she you know you know used to speak out? Yeah, I don't I don't really think she had a like a larger idea in mind with. Uh, with when she was going to trial she didn't she in the trial transcripts it seemed like she was fairly confused the entire time she didn't really understand why she was there she claimed the last time she saw her husband he was alive um so i don't think it ever really clicked with her that she had murdered him um it took many people telling her that she did so for her to kind of understand why she was on trial. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, a lot of the the eyewitness accounts of what she appeared like during the trial is she was just kind of um, empty behind the eyes, um, just just confused. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think her hands were tied, and I really do think in that, you know, it was kind of in the heat of the moment uh, that she decided to... Um, Act against Nathaniel. I don't. I don't think she had a larger idea in mind. Mm-hmm. So after being sentenced, uh, Charity Lane was imprisoned at the, the Portland Penitentiary. Um, is that building still around today, or have you been able to visit it? No, um, the penitentiary had actually just started construction on Front, um, which is now uh, NATO Street um, downtown and Harrison Streets. Um, so this was located just east of PSU campus, actually. Um, and that started construction in January 1854. Um, so this may account for why Charity was held in Hill- Hillsboro between May and September while she was awaiting the circuit um, judge to come back through. After her sentencing, she was temporarily housed with six other prisoners in um, it's a hotel it was called Salone's Hotel in Portland um, until the penitentiary's completion and throughout her entire incarceration Charity was the only female prisoner in the penitentiary Um, and in an 1859 report uh, written by Quaker visitors to the penitentiary they stated that the building was still in an unfinished condition and the cells um, the condition of the cells were quite unsanitary Um, they had spoke with uh, Charity, and she continued to maintain her innocence. And the visitor stated that there were many indicators that she was not of sound mind. Um, the penitentiary building was later abandoned in 1866, and all the prisoners were moved to the new state prison in Salem. So I would imagine it was uh, demolished shortly thereafter. All right, so... Later during Charity's imprisonment, she was transferred to the Hawthorne Asylum for the Insane. Um, Could you describe what life was like there, Um, and particularly what it might have been like for Charity? Sure. Um, Charity was moved into the brand-new Hawthorne Asylum in 1862. Um, The asylum was built by Drs. James Hawthorne and A.M. Loria to provide services for, quote, indignant, insane, and idiotic persons who were ordered there uh, by the court. Um, I've yet to locate the court ruling that sent Charity to the asylum from the penitentiary. This was never a part of her original sentencing. 
Um, I've read various reports from visiting physicians that describe the asylum as a place that seemed much more amiable than a prison cell. The asylum resided on several acres of land on Asylum Avenue, which was the name of Hawthorne Boulevard until 1888. Um, And this was between uh, Southeast 10th and 12th Avenues. A fence enclosed the grounds, and many of the inmates were permitted to exercise and play games in the yard. Inmates were fed a well-rounded diet, um, and the visiting physicians wrote that the whole building is constantly kept scrupulously clean and thoroughly ventilated. Uh, The females were engaged in sewing, knitting, ironing clothing for all the inmates. This was thought to relieve the tedium of their confinement. And Charity actually lived as a ward of the asylum until she died from a stroke um, on the date that was given is September 16, 1879. So this would be exactly to the day, 25 years after the conclusion of her trial. Um, she would have been about 65 years old. Um, in 1883, the remaining 370 Hawthorne patients were transferred to the New Oregon State Insane Asylum in Salem, and the Hawthorne Asylum was abandoned. So that assessment that you just brought up from the doctors who visited the facility, do you think that jives with what was actually going on there? Um, I mean, I guess I'm just going off horror stories I've heard about some of the early penitentiaries, uh, Nellie Bly's reporting in the New York Penit- or, uh, Asylum. Right. Uh, so maybe I, maybe I'm a little bit biased in um, my thought there, but I'm just curious if in your research you've seen anything about the conditions, whether they actually match up to these reports. Yeah, you know, um, this was an official uh, report that had to be written and recorded for the Oregon government government purposes. Um, so I'd imagine, that, you know, some of the language is probably a little flowery and. The discussion of um, inmates playing games in the yard and things like that are just a little hard for me to believe. Um, I do think, though, that they were well cared for, uh, definitely in comparison to some of the East Coast um, asylums. Um, Dr. Hawthorne was uh, really commended as a a stand-up guy and really did seem to care for his inmates. He actually... um, was known for paying um, for each inmate who uh, end- ended up dying within the asylum. He paid for them to have a uh, grave, a plot in Lonefer Cemetery um, just on uh, Southeast Stark Street. So that was pretty unheard of for the time. Um, a-, a-, a lot of times, and I'm sure you may have heard um, down in Salem, the Oregon State Insane Asylum with the... Uh, crematoriums and um, people were, you know, unclaimed remains were just remained in the canisters down Mm -hmm. there. Um, So, you know, just going off that, it it seemed like they were treated well. And once Dr. Hawthorne uh, passed away, um, I I don't think they were able to keep it up uh, the way he would have wished. And I think that's why um, the remaining patients were moved to the asylum down in Salem. 
that's really fascinating. I had no idea that uh, Hawthorne used to be called Asylum Avenue. Um, it's great, I go isn't d- it? <laughs> yeah. I go down that like area between 10th and 12th on Hawthorne all the time, and now I'm going to be looking at it as Asylum Avenue. Um, so that brings me up to a couple questions um, about site and space and locations. Um, I know it's 150 years old, but, I mean, the study of this topic must have brought you maybe – uh, familiar with some places. Have you been able to visit them? And I guess my key question is, is Charity Lamb buried in uh, Lone First Cemetery, or do we have any idea of where her remains are? Um, as far as I know, she is in there. Uh, they, um, people who have studied this uh, cemetery think that they know generally the area that the patients were buried. Um, but since um, since Dr. Hawthorne's death, um, it's believed that those were actually all the graves were paved over, and then um, other people were buried on top of that location. So I have no idea where she would be located, unfortunately. Um, and also, none of these buildings exist anymore that uh, we've been talking about. I have found a couple of pictures of the exterior of the penitentiary and the asylum, so at least there's a visual record of the last places Charity dwelled. Um, also, the land that the Lamb Homestead resided on uh, between the Clackamas River and what's now, um, what used to be Foster Road, but now is a section of the road um, of Clackamas Highway 224. Um, this land was largely under or undeveloped well into the second half of the 20th century. A man named Frank Frank Branch Riley uh, wrote a letter to the Oregon Historical Quarterly in April 1969, which stated that he frequently inspected the, what remained of the cabin. Um, he said that there were a dozen or so apple trees of, from the original farm that still bore fruit, um, picturesque mountain meadows, uh, scenic loveliness and tranquility, and he said that it was a very improbable setting for the horrendous story of violent hate. I guess to, to gain an idea of what a, a homestead, or maybe more of an affluent homestead, may have looked like, uh, Philip Foster, who was about four miles away from uh, the Lamb homestead, and Nathaniel periodically worked for him. But this farm still exists in the original location near Estacada um, in Eagle Creek. Uh, the original farmhouse and barn still stand, and there's a replica of the store that was there and the original log cabin. Um, this farm is at the end of Barlow Road, which was an important resting place for travelers on the last leg of the Oregon Trail. And the farm is seasonally open to visitors and hosts events and sometimes has live historical reenactments. They have live historical reenactments? Yes. Wow. <laughs> All right. I don't assume this one's included. No. Is this one? No. Not this event. Okay. Um, well, I guess what I was thinking about, um, uh, what happened to the children of the lambs? Do you have any, was there any record of them after the, the, the trial of what what happened to the boys and then mm-hmm. the one daughter? Um, still kind of going through that. I found some things on Ancestry.com, um, Marianne was married very shortly after uh, the trial. I, I believe she was actually married a few times, or at least twice, and uh, it seems that she was also a victim of domestic violence through her first marriage. 
Um, it's horrible. Yeah, she just couldn't escape it. Um, some of the boys, uh, the younger ones, were adopted from families uh, around town. Um, a couple of the, at least one or two of them, um, actually changed their last name from the spelling L-A-M-B to L-A-M. I would imagine to separate themselves from the case, uh, separate themselves from the family. Um, other than that, I'm still kind of looking into uh, what happened to the land. Um, they were not given any rights to the land as uh, Charity and Nathaniel were not there a full four years. I don't think that they had the full ownership and so the children wouldn't have been able to inherit any of that land, which was unfortunate. Uh, so you mentioned to me um, outside the interview that you recently visited the Willamette University archives in Salem. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your experience like there? Um, as with every archive, it's helpful to notify the archivist beforehand um, sure. when you'll be visiting and what materials, if, if you're aware of what materials you need, um, they can pull them for you. Um, the archivists at Willamette University were extremely helpful. They had all my materials out on the table ready for me upon my re- arrival. Um, there, I primarily examined the report of the physicians of the Oregon Hospital for the Insane um, between the years 1867 and 1868. Um, so this report has kind of uh, given me a jump start in providing um, some important demographic and facility conditions information that may benefit um, certain aspects of my research uh, regarding the rapid increase of female patients after 1870. So I'm just kind of skimming the surface on that right now, but um, what I've found so far has been pretty interesting. So um, you are an art historian. Correct. Uh, um, Now you are studying legal uh, law. So how has that transition (laughs) been, and um, how have you been able to... To make that transition, how to what have you had to acquaint yourself with in order to do this research? Well, um, studying a legal case has provided some unique challenges, as I'm not a legal historian and have no background in law. Um, I am most interested in the social and emot- emotional conditions caused by domestic violence on the Oregon frontier, but I realize that this will directly tie into uh, legal ramifications and sentencing. Uh, Also, like, uh, legal proceedings and expectations of behavioral conduct in Oregon Territory differed from those in more developed regions of the United States during the 19th century. So I think I'll have to uh, rely on a lot of secondary source information of legal historians, um, one in particular being Ronald Lansing. Um, That's where I am with that. Um, Also, if if a husband used physical force against his wife, it was considered legal and normal, Uh, especially in frontier societies, unless he caused permanent damage. Um, Yet it was not appropriate or tolerated for a woman to strike her husband. So as communities continued to grow, expectations for behavioral conduct were more clearly expressed and enforced by society, and the practice of domestic violence had widely declined in most of the country by the mid-19th century. Men began to be questioned about the nature of violence against their wives. Um, Females became resistant to said violence, and society began the process of intervention. Um, However, the Oregon Territory was isolated both physically and socially from these developments, and the separation had a direct effect on the levels of domestic violence on the frontier. So I must keep all these differences in mind when looking at legal reports and court rulings. Well, um, 
this case certainly fascinating. I really um, appreciate you coming down here today to discuss it with us and discuss your research. Appreciate your time, Jenna. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Beyond Footnotes is sponsored by the PSU Department of History and was recorded at KPSU's studio. Music in this episode from Moom and Nico. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or hear other episodes of Beyond Footnotes by visiting soundcloud.com slash beyondfootnotes, kpsu.org, or visiting the History Department's website here at PSU. Signing off, I'm Joshua Justice. And I'm Ryan Wisnor. Thanks for listening.
Of the season, 